Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Naaman. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. This podcast is looking at recruitment, retention and attrition. And so today we have three wonderful new speakers. So we've got Joe McNamara, Hazel Pennington and Shannon Johnson. Uh, coming to you first, Joe. do you want to introduce yourself? Hello. So I am Joe McNamara. I'm a um, therapeutic radiographer by background and I'm currently working um, as the National Macmillan Therapeutic Radiography Clinical Fellow. And I also am a senior lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, and I am currently the year one course leader and also admissions tutor. Thank you. Coming to Hazel. Hello, so I've been a therapeutic radiographer for over 25 years. Where has the time gone? Anyway, <laughs> so at the moment, I am a anticonment at Macmillan with Joe um, as a, a therapeutic radiographer clinical fellow. Um, and I come from a clinical background, so latterly um, was setting up the proton surface um, in Manchester. Brilliant. So coming to Shannon, um, just to say very quickly, Hazel, I think you've been practicing longer than Shannon's been alive. Sorry, so Shannon. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, David. So, yeah, my name's Shannon, and um, I'm a rotational therapeutic radiographer. So, as name has just kind of said, I've been qualified for for just under two years now, um, and I love my job. Um, I work at the Beacon Centre at Musgrove Park Hospital in Taunton in Somerset, um, and yeah. It's been a great couple of years. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it's, I know, Joe, you've been involved in a podcast recently, Hazel and Shannon, presume this is your first time, but how are we all doing? Podcast virgin, absolutely. Even though <laughs> 25 years qualified, Shannon, this is my first time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm renowned for podcasts because I talk way too much. <laughs> We're saying nothing, yeah. Joe. We're saying nothing. Just for anyone who's listening, we have got a traffic light system, so I've got a red card, a yellow card. But Joe, she talks too much, so it's all good. <laughs> um, good. Well, it's nice to have you all on. Um, so let's start getting into it a little bit. Um, so sort of a question to all of you. Um, how do we engage the general public and patients within our profession? So therapeutic radiography specifically. Uh more often than not, I'm sure, as most people know, and all four of us know, we get confused with being a nurse or a doctor, or me being a male, I'm the doctor, and one of you would be a nurse, for example. Um, so, Hazel and Joe, I know you've been doing a lot of work around this with your clinical fellow roles with Macmillan. Uh, so, coming to you in a second, Hazel, uh, I just want to say, Shannon and I have used a video that Hazel's in, uh, which is amazing. Um, so, which is why I'm going to come to you first, Hazel. So, is it important, or how important is it to you to use the term therapeutic radiographer and not therapy radiographer? Which I did use in the video. Yes, I did say therapy. And to be honest, um, Naaman, I must admit, when I've come into this role as a Macmillan Therapeutic Radiographer Clinical Fellow, the aim of the role is to promote the profession. So, I've done a lot of reflection on my own profession, and I've been in mm. positions of responsibility where I've you know, managed large teams of staff. I managed over 50 therapeutic radiographers as well as diagnostic radiographers and other AHPs. And actually, I've personally missed a lot of opportunities. So you're always learning. doesn't matter how experienced, how qualified you are. And that's what I've learned. Actually, looking back, it's really important because you, you get used to being a therapeutic radiographer and you think everybody else knows who you are, what you are, and they don't. 
Um, so it's really important in that first introduction with people, whether it's sat in an MDT meeting, when you first meet people, whether it's when you first meet a patient, whether it's you reviewing patient literature um, about what the team does and who are the team members, is just you need to grasp that opportunity. If you go and present at a conference, particularly if it's multidisciplinary, open it up and say, I'm a therapeutic radiographer, you know, you know, thank you for the opportunity for allowing me to speak. But I'll be honest that I've missed simple, simple opportunities um, to promote the profession. And I don't want people to learn from the opportunities that I've missed in reflection. So yeah, absolutely. And ultimately we owe it to the patients. That's our registered titles. So I do some work also for the Health and Care Professions Council. And it's important that patients know who we are and what we are registered as because if they want to make a complaint hopefully not the public should know who we are and which register um, we're on yeah i think that's a good point i mean it can be a bit of a mouthful to say i'm a therapeutic radiographer when you're trying to introduce yourself but i know in the department i work in uh, our review team is nurse-led so actually some people think i'm a nurse because i'm wearing a tunic but as you said, it's very important to distinguish the differences because they can talk about chemotherapy drugs, whereas I can't. So if I give a bit of advice, that's good. But on a governance level, actually, they need to be the ones providing it because if anything, as you said, goes wrong, then I'd be the one who's being in trouble. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good point. And um, so, Joe, you, you sent some interesting stats through. I mean, more specifically for Sheffield Hallam University around therapeutic radiography um, as a subject. But... I suppose going on from introducing ourselves and how important it is, one of the big stats that really stuck out for me was so 30% of students either received or knew someone who had received care from a therapeutic radiographer. So that, you know, going on from what Hazel said about introducing ourselves, that really stuck because that's about, I think this was 102 students out of 339 who had seen firsthand work. So what we do in our profession. So, Chair, how important do you think that is, you know, yeah, around absolutely. that element? Absolutely, Naaman. I think we have experienced this for years and using our registered title with our patients is absolutely fundamental to making sure that a patient will go home and talk about their experiences, talk with friends and family about having radiotherapy and received care and, and support from therapeutic radiographers to not only just promote careers and promote the profession, but it, it is about promoting what we do um, you know, it's really important for us to have visibility um, as a profession so that people know what to expect, what to experience and who it is that they can rely on when they're going through their radiotherapy treatment. So um, I know that the Strategic Interventions in Health Education Disciplines had sent round a survey for students to complete um, and that statistic really heavily does stick out. Um, but I think also anecdotally just around the fact that 38% of students found out about the profession through the internet. Um, so again, if they're on, if, if healthcare professionals are on social media or even, even when you're in your day-to-day -day life, if you're kind of refraining from using your professional title, people don't associate a, a radiographer with delivering radiotherapy. They think of a radiographer as being a diagnostic radiographer and delivering an x-ray. Um, and actually, for both professions, it's important that we can 
distinguish between the different professions and hopefully that will increase the general public's knowledge of what it is that we do but also fundamentally around promoting the career and hopefully that will increase recruitment. I think um, when we look at some of the statistics around how many students apply for diagnostic radiography compared to therapeutic radiography, it is quite shocking. So obviously I can speak personally from Sheffield Hallam University's perspective, but it is considerable um, in terms of the actual percentage um, difference between the number of applications. And although I don't have the statistical evidence, I can guarantee it is not because people don't want to be a therapeutic radiographer, it's because they don't know that, that therapeutic radiography exists. And actually, we did do a lot of work last year um, as part of um, my role when I was on a secondment, specifically looking at admissions processes um, to look at how we could actually promote the profession to those applying to diagnostic radiography, because some of those applicants would actually be more suited to therapeutic radiography. Um, and it's just because they had no knowledge or had never heard of it before. And we do have students on the course, very successful students, who only found out about the profession as a result of coming to an interview and it being mentioned that actually some of the characteristics or some of the things that they had actually mentioned in their interview prompted the interviewer to say and have you ever considered therapeutic radiography um, so from that perspective it is it's definitely key that we are using the terminologies um, and I myself used to use therapy radiographer I think I used to use uh, radiotherapist when I was a student um, and I hear a whole host of different um, terminologies being used but I think it's it's absolutely fundamental that we try and promote everyone using the same terminology wherever we can um, just so that we can educate the general public our patients and also then future students yeah i think that's good and i think even to draw a parallel is across the world we're called radiation therapists um so i suppose even for that people still know that's to do with radiation and therapy but therapeutic yeah. radiographer obviously similar um moving very nicely into how terminology works um Shannon, you and I saw a Lad Bible post quite recently around uh, the wonderful roles within the NHS, so allied health professionals specifically. Uh, and there was a post by Lad Bible, which was allegedly in partnership with NHS England, uh, which led to, I don't know, a very nice, cohesive response from the therapeutic radiography community to all report it, get them to put it down. Um, <clears throat> so if, if anyone who didn't see it, it was all around how just as uh, joe said so we we use x-rays to well we're basically just comparing us to diagnostic radiographers um and actually it was very misleading and incorrect information um so yeah so shannon how do you think uh, a post like this affects you know how the general public view our profession and especially considering the younger audience that lad bible reaches i think a post like that what we saw can be quite detrimental to the recruitment process as the majority of you know lab bibles target audience are the ages that we kind of focus on for recruitment um so with therapeutic radiography being one of the many professions currently in a sort of a recruitment crisis it doesn't really reflect well on sort of you know oncology and radiotherapy as a whole you know lab bible has like 10.4 million followers so you know the audience it's gone out to is absolutely massive um and obviously it doesn't just stop there you know people are sharing it with their friends and family and it can be sent all over sort of social media so 
you know, social media is great, but also it's so difficult to attract sort of this incorrect information from a platform, you know, which is used by millions of people from a source which they usually rely on. Um, so I think just the way that our profession was described was not only sort of incorrect, but it doesn't really allow, you know, the general public or population, as well as, you know, the cancer patients undergoing treatment such as radiotherapy, sort of a mm. good impression of what the role of a therapeutic radiographer actually is. Um, so it's kind of that vicious cycle of, you know, not using the actual sort of our proper title, um, but then people not actually understanding what it is from sort of false information online. Um, but, you know, as Neiman also said about, you know, pay partnership with NHS England, you know, a lot of people have put their trust into this and think that it's actually true. Um, and obviously people are more likely to believe it from a source such as the NHS. Um, but we do know that the Society of Radiographers are looking into it, but they're yet to release a statement. So we're looking forward to sort of what that says, really. It is it is quite shocking as well when you think, I know statistically I've looked at that, um, and it had a reach of over 18 million people. Yeah. And I know that they'd increased um, 2,000 people to the NHS careers pages as a result of, of those posts, which is brilliant because obviously you'd hope that on the NHS careers pages it could then rectify any of the the maybe misleading messages that that those social media posts but again it it goes some way to demonstrate that the general public's knowledge of what we do isn't accurate because otherwise anyone putting that social media post would have gone oh I'm not sure if this is a diagnostic radiographer or a therapeutic radiographer um, there should have been questions asked, but they weren't because people don't know. Um, so I think that in itself kind of highlights that what the issue is and what we need to do as a profession um, to highlight everyone's knowledge. Exactly. And I think some of the sort of other options that you could have chosen from about what we do as a as a job role was about do we work with radios? So, you know, it's just taking the sort of... <laughs> you know a sort of crazy idea of you know we don't work anywhere near radios so although my grandfather did think i was on the radio <laughs> <laughs> he thought i had the voice for it obviously <laughs> oh, well i suppose something i started doing so i've just moved house so having to email and change addresses and blah 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 um i kind of copied someone i know who's uh the lead for one of the special interest group for the uh information support um, her name's Sarah Matthews. So she, on her email signature, even for her personal emails, it just says her name and then therapeutic radiographer. So I just thought, I'll give it a go. Copied it, did it, and actually, fine. When I've been just trying to change my addresses and do it quickly, I've had a few people come back and say, you've put this, what is it? Obviously, first yeah. and foremost, they're you know they're on their phone or on a computer. They could Google it, but given that explanation each time, it's been quite nice that random people from... I don't know, had Barclays um, and a few other people who've just been interested. So that might be something for people to, you know, consider. Obviously, we have our email signatures in work, which just get longer and longer with all the different things we do or addresses or like a Macmillan banner there or, your, you know, I don't know, for me, for Imperial College, that banner there it just gets bigger and it's almost like an A4 size signature at the end of it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just think that that you know i find it difficult to impress on patients staff and sort of students when i do stem talks i'm sure you know we, we've all had similar issues but because my title has always been macmillan review radiographer or senior therapeutic radiographer with that so that's 2001 and now it's macmillan treatment review radiographer whenever i introduce myself to a patient i don't say that 
I do, Joan Hazel, I promise, I do try and say therapeutic radiographer, but most of them are just like, so you're a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I, I actually experienced that when I was doing some running um, to raise money for action radiotherapy. And I started wearing T-shirts that advertise therapeutic radiography. And uh, usually, obviously, I'd have been just in the gym or, or just at home doing exercise. But being out and about and running, people would stop me and go, oh, what is that? So it's all it's in everyday life that you can promote the profession um and hazel and i have worked really hard actually to develop some top 10 tips on basically how you can raise your profile as a therapeutic radiographer um and we've advertised that quite heavily on twitter and some of the other social media platforms and hopefully it'll be in synergy this month as well um but that is all about how we can you know have introduce ourselves with our patients and incorporate it in patient literature put it on the organization website you know everyone should be checking what the nhs trust that you work for advertises the profession as thinking about your conferences i know i do it all the time or i'm a senior lecturer actually i've started reverting to i am a therapeutic radiographer and i am a senior lecturer um, because again it's 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 getting that across um fundamentally and again getting people to actually ask the question oh what is that so that you can then explain it yeah i think that's really interesting damon what you said about putting on your personal email and i know some people would like to separate work and personal and i think that's absolutely fine but it, it's fascinating and i think it, if some people are happy the fact that people's barclays bank or the estate agents or you know the grocers are like you know what is that who is that that's that's really good i'm going to going to think about but from a service manager point of view, it is a challenge. Mm. You know, we can't d deny it. Mm. We can't say it isn't a challenge. And we have a long title, don't we? Therapeutic radiographer, as a, but, you know, instead of nurse or, you know, something much shorter and snappier. And again, another challenge um, I came across when working in protons and developing new roles, some of those roles were for either a therapeutic radiographer or a nurse. And this is something I'm quite passionate about when I see some job descriptions and it's usually they're just limited to nurses. And this is not putting down our nursing colleagues who are absolutely fantastic. But I think, hold on a minute, a therapeutic radiographer could do that job description, but it's for a clinical nurse specialist. And sort of just bringing that back into the challenge service, developing new roles. Because what, what, what do I call the clinical nurse specialist or the specialist radiographer? And we kept both those titles, but then we called them a generic key worker as well. So what the point I'm getting to, it, it, it is a challenge. And even if we, like you, Naaman, you're a review radiographer, I think that's fine. You can have that shorter, snappier title, but still take the opportunity. It's on the bottom of your email. When you first introduce yourself to a patient, I'm a review radiographer or I'm a key worker. I'm a therapeutic radiographer by background. Let me just explain a little bit. And something I've just been thinking whilst been on this podcast, what would be nice was maybe we could as a group develop some posters because I think as a patient, when you sat in a, a waiting room, you look at the poster, don't you? And actually, maybe it is, I'm giving your treatment today. I'm a therapeutic radiographer. I'm reviewing your side effects today. I'm a therapeutic radiographer. I'm managing your pathway today. I'm a therapeutic radiographer. Maybe there's other opportunities um, that we can use but it, it's definitely difficult and it's not as easy as a nurse where a clinical nurse specialist fits in nicely advanced nurse practitioner nice and neat but 
we are where we are and I think we've, we've just got to look outside the box um, to educate patients, public. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a really good point. And like you said earlier, um, you know, we're known as like really therapists or sort of a radiation technician or something like that. So sometimes it is really difficult to sort of explain our title because it can come across as such a mouthful. But like you mentioned earlier, Hazel, it is a protected title by like the HCPC. So I guess that is a point of like, why don't we use it? Um, and like if we don't use our full title, sort of patients and prospective students and, you know, the general population, they're probably then less likely to know what we do as a profession. So like you said, I think that poster thing is actually a really, really good idea. And I think we could definitely also linking back to the worldwide people use radiation therapists. Again, when I was developing the proton service, I went to a lot of centres overseas, particularly in the US, um, where they were radiation therapists, but they were a, a different, more limited role. We are trained in oncology and you wouldn't get for example, in the US, a radiation therapist doing on-treatment reviews. That just wouldn't happen. So we are a, we are a different profession. Different. We're not just radiation um, therapists. We are an expanded, we're an oncology professional. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's something around role extensions. Um, I think we've kind of all covered it anyway. But when it comes to a consultant level, you, you want to say you're a consultant. You don't want to say, I'm a therapeutic radiographer, because they'll be like, well, are you going to consent me for treatment today? Are you someone senior or not? So I think there's finding the balance, but consultant therapeutic radiographer or I'm a consultant or, yeah, there's, there's a bit of work around it, I suppose. But as I said, you know, the top tips, posters, maybe we just need some wallpaper that says therapeutic radiographer in every department. <laughs> so everyone well, you know knows those what beautiful <laughs> illuminated lights yeah. that you get uh, for the patients to lie down. I think we need to get rid of the beach scenes and just have lots of <laughs> lots of stats about therapeutic radiographers. I am only joking. That would not go down well with our patients. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so it's good to have a laugh about it because it is important, but it's a lighthearted subject, I guess. <laughs> but I suppose going from there, so, you know, engaging the public and then students or people who've Known a family member looking into recruitment. Obviously, it's been a tough year. Try not to focus too much on COVID, but everything has clearly changed. You know, lots of virtual events, work experience programs are cancelled. Um, so, Shannon, I know you were looking into how this will affect students in the future. Um, you know, how, how do you think work experience can continue in the future with the workplace at the moment? And how do we support sort of students and even their parents to feel comfortable about them coming to hospital in the future? So, you know, we've already briefly mentioned like throughout the past year you know I'm sure everyone feels the same you know it's been really tough and you know being part of the work experience outreach team has been you know really difficult to be a part of at points so but you know it's been really difficult in the sense we've been really proactive pre-covid so it's meant that you know where our passion lies we've had to really adapt very quickly um and I should think as sort of a work experience team it's shown our resilience about how flexible we have to be um you know um, sort of working in the pandemic has really highlighted how much we you know are really grateful for how and value our students really um and i think you know it's really sort of boosted their confidence in that and also prospective students as well um, and noting how you know, important the nhs is generally but also at a time of crisis like we are in the moment you know and i was lucky enough to have the chance to be involved with a number of virtual um events within the last year but as Naaman and I, you know, have found out, it's actually been really difficult to engage with these students through sort of virtual platforms due to sort of technical difficulties or sort of, you know, they're already doing virtual online with schoolwork. They don't want to come and see us as well. 
Um, and, you know, but, um, you know, some prospective students are currently getting work experience through sort of other platforms. So we've got one sort of coming up for, for my trust in Somerset in March about, you know, National sort of Science Week and everything. And this has actually been sort of um, proven by the trust to account for some work experience for universities. So this is actually a really, really good thing, really positive. And it's been so popular. So it's really nice to see that people are still really engaged and still interested sort of so far into the sort of the pandemic at the moment. Um, and hopefully, you know, with the most recent announcements of sort of lockdowns, um, easing, work experience may be on the horizon. So fingers crossed. Um, but, you know, I've also had the opportunity to speak with a few older students sort of virtually through um, the work experience pathway. So I've read a number of personal statements, conducted a few mock interviews in the hope of discussing what it's really like in a radiotherapy department. So I think that's been quite vital for them, you know, even if it is online. Um, and that's something that they've mentioned sort of when applying for university. Um, but, you know, I can understand, you know, for students coming back in, sort of will PPE be still a thing? you know, and dealing with maybe more difficult conversations that the pandemic has brought for sort of all of us. Um, I, I can understand that can be quite frightening for parents and students. Um, but hopefully with a sort of positive outlook coming up in the next few months, we can sort of keep adjusting to sort of, you know, what universities want and what students really need. So Yeah, and I think that's important that, you know, yes, it's been tough, but it's temporary. You know, we've obviously been open for business regardless. Um and I think same with the students being phased back in. It's been, sorry, so students from university being phased back in. Um, when we start to get, you know, work experience age students, they need to be phased back in too. And it's something that, you know, every department does need to consider. So I suppose moving from there, Hazel, from your service service manager element, how important is that hands-on experience? And do you think virtual learning could maybe not take over, but do you think it would have a play in so using like VERT? Uh, for example, so the virtual suites, et cetera? Um, so I think you, you can't replace hands-on experience. I think it's it's absolutely essential. Um, the job um, is, is very practical. And it's not just the practical elements of um, radiotherapy techniques, but it's the elements of interacting with patients, interacting with other health professionals. It's all that sort of face-to-face um, hands experience that's essential and what you want as a service manager is new graduates that hit the ground running you don't want somebody that's been so removed from a department that it's going to take some time to induct and embed them into the service um, that said though I think there's definitely a place for virtual training um, and it's something we should embrace and it's something that should complement and work synergistically with hands-on and it's not just in COVID times. I mean, and Joe will probably um, mention, you know, there's often challenges. We want to train more students, but, you know, placements can be limited um, in practical, you know, on the linear accelerators or in protons. Um, and there's some great work going on at the Christie. Um, protons um, is a national service, the NHS. Um, so it's the only one currently um, operational. So we're doing some setting up some virtual placements for anybody across the country. So that's great, isn't it, by delivering it virtual. Um, you know, whether you're in Bristol or whether you're in Manchester, you have equal opportunities. So that's a really good sort of selling point of virtual. But as I say, it doesn't replace. And I think something else, I think because of COVID that, that we've sort of forgotten, lots of staff enjoy teaching students. We've taken something away from them in a clinical department it should be integral and part of your role 
Um, and now it's it's great it's been brought back in, but I think a lot of staff actually missed having the students um, and teaching them. And then that's what we want as, as, as practitioners is, is variety in our role. And I know I always love teaching students and the students shaped um, my career path. Yeah, it, you know, it's always good to have a student on hand to go and get some prescriptions too. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to learn somewhere. Oh, naming. <laughs> no. Um, so moving from there, so going back to your lovely stats again, I'm going to call it Syed. I can't remember the full name. We've already been talking about how we shouldn't shorten things, but yeah, the, I'll let you explain what's Syed. The Strategic Interventions in Health Education Disciplines. That's, that's the one. So, <laughs> so, so some of the stats again was percent of students heard about therapeutic radiography or the profession between age 16 to 18. Um, so Joe, do you think this is too old? And do you think we should be targeting our recruitment to even younger students? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important that um, we educate primary school children about cancer um, generally and that people are aware and not scared of the word cancer. Um, I had cancer um, not last year, the year before and was diagnosed very, uh, very by accident, to be honest, because I had wisdom tooth pain. And uh, it was only as a result of going to the dentist that the dentist said, oh, um, you've got a slightly enlarged um, thyroid and I hadn't really thought anything about it and anyway they didn't really pursue it until I'd then gone on um, and seen my GP and I actually went to Hong Kong to do some work um, in radiotherapy and whilst I was there I had really severe tonsillitis and um, I had a lymph node that was up um, and as with being a therapeutic radiographer when you've got a lymph node up you're like hmm why is this lymph node constantly up? So um, so it all kind of came together and eventually I got referred for an ultrasound. Um, the results of that ultrasound got lost and I never found out about it. So being a patient was definitely an insight into what some of our patients have to go through. And it is scary because you do think, oh gosh, you know, what is it? And even though I kind of knew if it's thyroid cancer, I know that prognostically it's a really good outlook. There's loads of treatments. I knew about it. I wasn't kind of going into it, but it is still the word cancer. It still kind of makes you think, oh gosh. And actually what shocked me more was how other people reacted. Um, so my family, there were tears, mm. they were distraught. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, it's fine. Like, honestly, I will be fine. Um, but it was definitely a different insight that I had ever experienced before. And I always thought I was quite empathetic with my patients. I thought I had insight into what it must be like for them, what they must have to go through. You know, I was teaching students about what it was like to be a cancer patient through my years of experience. And actually, having a diagnosis has changed that. And I think some of the... Um, some of the therapeutic radiographers who are quite prominent on, say, social media like Twitter and talk about their cancer diagnosis, I think they themselves would say as well that it does have a lasting effect on you. I do have side effects from treatment. I do have side effects as a result of the surgery I've had. Um, and they are for life now. 
Um, and it does, you know, I'm an increased risk of developing other types of cancer. I have to go for tumor market tests every month. Um, so it does have a significance on your life. And although I'm very lucky that it was thyroid cancer and it wasn't another type of cancer, um, I think it does give me a very different sense of, of what it's like to be a cancer patient. Um, and so that's why I am so passionate about educating people about cancer as well as radiotherapy and the role of a therapeutic radiographer, because I think if we like make it less scary, more people will talk about it, more people will be able to kind of empathise and, and kind of uh, allow themselves to think, okay, what type of cancer do you have? What does that actually mean? What treatments might you have? Um, and definitely from my son's perspective, he quite happily goes, oh, yeah, my mum had cancer and she had thyroid cancer. And he's nine. Um and he talks about it openly with his friends. I went into his school and did a big talk about the fact that I had cancer and I was a therapeutic radiographer and um, kind of allaying some of these fears really about the whole topic. Um, but I think it's important. They learn about physiotherapy. They learn about diagnostic radiographers very early on. Um, so I think it's just as important. And I know Hazel and I, as part of our fellowship are working on um badges for girl guiding and scouting and linking with saint john's ambulance to link with a much younger demographic to talk to them about cancer to talk to them about radiotherapy and the role of therapeutic radiographers okay well first and foremost thank you for sharing that was very nice especially about your son i think there's a certain i don't have children but i know there's a certain amount of resilience when it comes to kids and actually some when they feel more comfortable with a topic, they do think they can open up more and tell more people. So I think that's really nice. Um, yeah. But I, th I think I, I agree that whether it's with building blocks, so starting younger, I know some of the stats, I don't remember off the top of my head, but the younger they were, the less they knew about our role and especially cancer. But when they come just before the GCSE age, when they might just be thinking, oh, okay, I do like a bit of science, I like a bit of this, that, etc. Actually around then when they do yeah. learn about cell cycle, for example, that's part of their curriculum and they do learn about cancer but actually from there would that be a building block into going into into a bit more depth so i think yeah pre-gcse it's important to know some of the different roles and what you know how do you treat cancer if you're having problems etc so yeah I, I think that's really good well there's there's nothing more frustrating as an admissions tutor when you've got someone who would be amazing but doesn't have the qualifications because they went into arts and music and then later on thought, oh, gosh, I'd love this career. This is amazing. I definitely want to do this. But they'd never heard of it. And so they'd chosen A-levels or um, chosen courses that were, were quite diverse um, and didn't align themselves into it. So had to obviously do a di other courses to be able to be eligible. Um, and again, for um, we have an MSc pre-registration course and we had MSc students who did, um, say, biochemistry or biomedical science. And they're like, oh, I wish I'd known about this profession prior to me studying that degree because I would have gone straight into it. Um, but they just didn't they didn't know they'd never heard of it. I think, yeah, there's definitely something in this for the future. And I know, Shannon, we did just to touch on very briefly, we did try with some of the schools in Somerset to try and get them to use us as an example. Again, we always just call the radiotherapists um, because of the title, it was a bit easier. But yeah, so 
suppose moving in from that, I know I joked about sending students off for prescriptions, but I've really missed having students around as well, especially in our new department. My new department is very, it's a lot bigger, so there's more universities that are involved. But, you know, we love, I think we all, when we do a, a talk to a, well, a student or, you know, a younger kind of kid at school, perhaps, that seeing the lies up when you talk, interesting. Um, some things, I did one on Saturday where I just used a, a quiz of uh, chocolates that have been x-rayed. I think classic thing. Obviously, we didn't scan it, it was a diagnostic radiographer, but we've used it to our advantage. Uh, you know, a bit of MDT working, I suppose. Um, but virtually, I think we've all touched <laughs> on that you do get that, um, the element of more exposure. So I was speaking to over 300 people from across the world, but that's just, I was actually doing it in a car park. <laughs> so, because I was in the middle of a moving house, but there is that for the future that although it's nice to have them back in, there is something that would, you know, mixing some of the virtual into it does really help. Um, so, yeah. And actually sometimes some of the really young students at career fairs, they're actually more engaging than some of the more mature students. Um, so it will be interesting to see how the future kind of plays out, I guess. Um, so, yeah. So, the, the interesting name and like when you talk about the future and, and when you're as old as I am, um, I, I was a clinical educator for five years and now some of my students are you know, senior roles, band sevens, band eights, and it's really rewarding. It's absolutely fantastic to think, oh my gosh, I taught those guys and look at them now. Um, and, you know, many of them have kept in touch with me and they keep me posted on how they're doing. And, and Joe probably, you know, has the same experience, but you get a lot back from see them and see them run rings around me. Um, when once upon a day, I thought, gosh, I used to teach you and now you're teaching me. But I love it. I absolutely love it. I think that brings us quite nicely into the retention element. So, you know, how, how do we keep students um, and staff within our profession? So, Joe, I know, you know, with, within your role as a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, um, you know, you moved to virtual lectures. You had me on recently too, which was amazing. Thank you again for the opportunity. Um, and... I suppose Pleasure. kind of you know, coming to you about how do you keep students involved enough to want to complete the course and then start working professionally and then you know also how does this translate into the workplace so if they've only only been having virtual and then maybe a six-week block of on-site how does that affect them when they come into a work environment say if they're newly qualified yeah so um I think the first thing to kind of mention is that actually during COVID, um, we haven't had too many changes um, specifically for Sheffield Hallam. Um, we have tried to keep as much of the clinical placement as we possibly can do. Um, so from that perspective, it's been nice that students have still been able to go into the departments um, and be a therapeutic radiography student um, and work practically. Um, but I would definitely say that it has been interesting to hear some of the comments that students have made, largely linking with what we've talked about, um, about getting that prospective student visit. So um, quite a number of our students had never had a departmental visit. They'd, they'd watched YouTube clips. They'd watched lots of media that I had given them, um, but they hadn't ever actually physically been in the department. And um, there were still surprises um, and we have had some students that have left. So I think 
one thing to definitely make sure that people appreciate is what constitutes attrition. So unfortunately, for anyone who has heard of the repair project, um, the repair project specifically was looking at pre-registration attrition of healthcare students. And initially, it was looking at therapeutic radiographers, nurses, midwives, learning disability and social work nurses. And essentially, when we were part of that project, um, it was very well documented as to how much different definitions of attrition affected the statistics. So higher education institutes um, document why students leave in a very different way or when they leave or how they leave. So it is important really from an NHS Health Education England perspective and also linking with HEIs that we do start to document um, why students are leaving. Um, for kind of current situation, um, there's a whole lot of financial hardship on students at the moment. So the government has pledged to be able to help some of those students, but I still don't think it's a lot of money and it's still not necessarily eligible for all students. So you can imagine that whilst people are doing um, university, quite often they will have part-time jobs, but because of COVID, they haven't necessarily been able to do that. Um, we've also had uh, some of our students, we have quite a high um, number of mature students, so they've been homeschooling. Um, and as a result of that, they've struggled with attending academic online lectures and, you know, going into clinical placement and having homeschooling responsibilities. Um, all of these factors will affect attrition. And we've definitely seen a higher increase in students not being able to complete or pass their first academic modules. And I think some of that is as a result of the additional pressures on students um, during COVID. Um, there have been some really positive highlights. Um, so the fact we're able to get in lots more SVLs. Um, so they're kind of our senior visiting lecturers. So like yourself, Naaman, it was great to kind of have people who have different interests. There's nothing more boring, um, I would suspect, than having me lecture you all week, every single hour. Is that because one hour um, lecture takes so about 10 hours? Or? <laughs> 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 <Absolutely>. <laughs> Um, but it's been really refreshing for the students um, to have different faces, have different people come in and talk to them. Whereas usually, actually getting someone to come in and deliver a lecture, you know, you have to get sign off from your manager. Um, it's really difficult because you then have to pay for travel. It just it's a bit of an, a logistical nightmare. Whereas digitally, it's been really nice that we've been able to have lots of people dip in, dip out, contribute in different ways. Some people hate the thought of a online face-to-face -face lecture, where actually we've had some people who've been quite confident in developing resources um, and talking to a camera about their role or what they do. But ultimately, it's not live, so they haven't got that additional pressure of having students ask them questions or looking at them. Um, so that's been really nice. Um, and I think the biggest success story has actually been some students who commented on the fact that actually they've never felt part of a cohort. And actually, as a result of being online and digital, they've made a huge number of friends. They're really integrated. They've thrived. Um, people go to them for help and support. And they've never had that 
at being a student in any other situation. So there are definite positives to come out of COVID and moving forward, thinking about, you know, Sheffield Hallam University has nine geographical radiotherapy departments. So we're as far north as Newcastle, Middlesbrough and as far south as Leicester. And actually being able to support students remotely is a real positive um, for us. Um, and students knowing that they can go on to an online session whilst they're in clinical, um, quite geographically removed, but have the support. Um, and that definitely will hopefully support attrition. Um, and lastly, <laughs> the one thing, because I'm sorry, What I would say is we're going to come to attrition really in a minute. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, I will. But natural attrition. So I think natural attrition is really important. Uh, there are some people that are not cut out to be therapeutic radiographers um, and it's important that we don't put every single strategy in place to keep them when ultimately it's not for them. Um, and it's important that we are able to recognise that either as lecturers, as practice educators, as mentors, um, as managers. I think everyone has a role to play in that sometimes attrition is a good thing and we and we do have to recognize that i think joe's right sometimes it's not the job for everybody and it can be quite challenging as a service manager if you then have to pick it up um when they come into as a role as a new graduate and i have been in the unfortunate position of having to do that and then unfortunately you know it's ended up in a referral to the hcpc so nobody wants to be in that position so um joe's absolutely you know right on that point um, in my opinion, and I guess just flipping to staff and um, thinking about retention, um, how do we, you know, we've, we've put all this effort into them graduating, how do we keep hold of them in the service? Uh, you know, and, and it is challenging and again, you know, COVID has removed lots of opportunities, which I am anxious about, you know, going to a conference is a nice thing, isn't it? Going on a study day is a nice thing and, and all those um, opportunities have gone, so hopefully they will return. I think as, as service managers, we need to think about flexibility. Um, and the law is slowly catching up. You know, it was just about flexible working for those with families, but now it's flexible working requests for any reason. And I think we've got to recognise that and actually think about flexible working in the more senior workforce. It was very, oh, yes, you can do a job, sure, or part-time, but it's, sort of, you know, the lower bands. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, sort of sort of an advocate for flexible working you know whilst maintaining a service and it can't cost more so it's that balance and the other big balance I think for me is staff need to feel valued they need to see that there's career opportunities and that value doesn't just come from the service lead or the head of service it comes from everybody you as the band six you know on the Lynette you need to value the students you need to value your band five and it's having that balance between compassionate leadership, which we hear a lot about at the moment, but you still need to be a manager. You still have to make management decisions quickly, particularly in times like COVID. So it's getting that balance right. So your team feel part of the team and they feel valued. You know, support secondments for staff members, support opportunities, you know, let them do audits. Let them spend some time with the governance team. Let them spend time with the paediatric nurses. W whatever opportunities you have in your department, you know, they'll be everywhere. But, you know, give them to the staff um, as well so they feel, you know, part of um, everything. 
I think that definitely fits Hazel with some of the work we're looking at as well in terms of how the pre-registration curriculum can help align with what's going on in in practice so with the white paper that's recently been published integrated services I think that's what we're moving towards and I think actually allowing students and staff to have some flexibility um, will definitely align better for for patient pathways and improving our knowledge and you know it's not just about us teaching students about prehab and rehab actually they'll see patients in in practice having that support and advice given by the therapeutic radiographers but then maybe following patients into their kind of referral to their physiotherapy appointments um, and learning with from and about different healthcare professionals so again being able to educate patients um, and support them in a better way through the pathway. Yes, I think with virtual sort of learning as well so you know as you said the community element of students with each other but also community element I think especially through COVID, quite a few staff that I worked with were working from home, sort of shielding. They would have their normal team meeting, and then I think we start to integrate a team meeting with them to keep them involved. But moving forward, exactly as you said, Hazel, with flexible working, um, you know, you get so much more work done when you're at home. Um, you really do, because, you you know, there's no one coming Absolutely. in through the door saying, oh, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, or, you know, someone asking you to do something when actually you've already got a meeting with them at the end of the week, but they want to do it now because it's on their agenda. I think that that's quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's good to know, you know, flexible working for us as well. I think when we work in such close-knit teams, there might be too many people on the machine. So, you know, now social distancing, we still practice it, but before it was really important when you've got 10 people on a LINAC, um, a linear accelerator, um, you're not going to be able to get them all in safely. So, yeah, I think flexible working. I think, Hazel, you, you know, you touched on, as you've said, being quite experienced in our profession. Um, so being head of protons is pretty amazing. Um, I had to slip this in because Joe has teased me about it enough. That def- definitely had a slight professional <laughs> crush on you from uh, from a work perspective. She wouldn't let it go if I didn't say it now, so I have to do it. But you know, you've touched on with flexible working, how you're supporting people, and you know, we'll come on a bit more detail with attrition anyway. But I suppose where you've got to where you are, how would you you know help other people staying motivated and remain in the profession? So the retention element not just with COVID, but with going into different, you know, secondments or, you know, like me, perhaps rotating into review to get different skills or then, you know, we'll come to Shannon in a sec, but, you know, rotating into pre-treatment, for example. So, yeah, how can you guide others? Absolutely. Well, I'm honoured, so, uh, yeah, thank you. You're blushing a bit. Yeah, yeah, the question, question in hand about motivation and remaining in the profession, um, so I have dipped in and out the profession. Um, you know, I've had a long profession. I've also dipped out. Um, I, I did a law degree. Thought, oh, I might want to, you know, be a lawyer. Um, and actually, I missed being a radiographer. I missed the patient contact. And somehow, there's always been a magnetic pull. Um, I've tried to leave the profession, but I've always come We've back. We've kept you coming back. Exactly, exactly. There's like a mysterious, you know, magnet somewhere. But And I think that's good, though, because I recognise, actually, the grass is not greener. Um, and although I've done other stuff, so I did dip out and I did do a law degree. I worked in clinical negligence for a short while. And I came back because I was sat at my desk and I thought, just, you know, I miss, I miss the people, I miss the patients. But then that experience with the law degree 
I brought back in, I did employment law as a service manager. So the dipping my toe into something else then gave me a broader experience back into being a therapeutic radiographer. And for me, variety. Variety is the spice of life. Um, and that's what sort of kept me motivated. And one thing I wanted to pull out of this podcast was to say I was really fortunate. I had um, a good mentor, for want of a better word, who was a consultant clinical oncologist who saw skills in me that I didn't even know I had. And it was him that came to my office one day and said, I think you should apply for protons. It was just, oh, it was out, it was out of the blue. Um, and it was through his encouragement and recognising key skills in me that I, I truly didn't know I had. And now I look back and think, gosh, he was right. I could do it and I did do it. Um, so I think that's something we all need to take away. But that person was really um, pivotal um, in my career. And I think don't underestimate how powerful that can be by you telling a student some really positive, encouraging feedback or you telling a band six. You know, I was a band eight when this person was in my office, um, but it, it really made a difference and it made a, a massive difference to my career. And I'll be, you know, forever fortunate. Um, and it's the same um, mentorship that I remember as um, a student, my clinical tutor was outstanding. And I, I remember saying to me just before I qualified, Hazel, you'll take to it like a duck to water. Um, and it, but it stays with you. So that's what for our listeners, I want that, them to take that away that, you know, mentorship, guidance, positive encouragement. Um, and you think it's just a flip away comment. Um, but it can yeah, make I agree. that role model element you know, or mentor, whatever you want to really call it. It's just someone looking out for you, even if you're not, even if you think that isn't a skill that you necessarily wanted, if you're good at it, sometimes you have to go with it. And yeah, exactly. Variety. Um, I agree. You can't stay doing one thing forever. Some people are happy with it, but it's you, about, you know, you as the individual as well. If you want to dip your toe in something else, go for it. Why not? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you think you're right, Naaman, and we shouldn't, you know, look down on those that want to stay in the same role, that's absolutely fine too. And I think we should celebrate those people too. You know, it's not about everybody wants to be um, a, a senior or it's absolutely fine to stay. Yeah, you know, I agree. The um, and they're very important for the profession. They give such a, you know, a wealth of knowledge, especially to people um, who, well, you're not nearly qualified anymore, Shannon. You've been almost two years now. So you're a proper brand five, as people would say. <laughs> How, how have you kept focus on your ambitions and I suppose with all of this around you, you know, CPD, looking at maybe master progression or specialising or anything? Um, yeah, so I think like, you know, both you, Hazel and Naaman have touched on sort of learning from example is something that, you know, been, you know, really driven me in my sort of the start of my career. So, you know, that's why I wanted to sort of focus on my master's and, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'm actually starting my roles sort of training to be a practice educator. So, having that really good role model, um, both as a student and as a newly qualified radiographer, uh, therapeutic radiographer, sort of within my preceptorship has been sort of invaluable in sort of allowing me to see my ambitions. And, you know, I feel like I'm actually very lucky to have had a really good couple of years starting out sort of pre-COVID. Oh, back in the day. So, um, <laughs> I'm not sure people are aware. Yeah, literally. <laughs> um, so Naaman and I, you know, are very fortunate enough to have won sort of a STEM award so people that 
don't know what it is. It's a sort of a science, technology, engineering and mathematics sort of award. So we're, um, Joe is also an ambassador for STEM. So we sort of promote the profession through that. So going into schools and um, through their getting a little bit of their curriculum and really promoting what we do because we're so passionate about it. And we were lucky enough to be, you know, the first NHS sort of trust within the UK to win something like this. So, you know, it was absolutely amazing and really boosted my confidence so early on. Um, you know, things like that. So it's, I don't know, I have a lot of ambition going forward from that, seeing, you know, how sort of successful we can be in sort of promoting the, effect, uh, the profession to sort of either that's prospective students or just generally the population. And, you know, I've had so many opportunities of being able to be involved with things like action radiotherapy um, and being part of the national steering group to promote, you know, therapy, therapeutic radiography as well. And I know COVID has put a lot of setbacks to it but it's actually brought out a lot of, a lot of positives to allow us to be you know reflective practitioners of what we actually have achieved and you know what we can sort of work towards um in the near future yeah and i think that's it isn't it so the, the future i suppose i think people will always say to you, you know why do you work so hard or do you think you're not you know do you think you're doing too much or you know you just get more tired or burnt out further down the line but some people just want to do that and you know if, if there's opportunities or doors that open for you um I think you just have to go for it, to be honest. Um, I think a bit personal, but I think working in our profession, I've seen firsthand sort of how short life is and how quickly things can change, literally overnight or within a second. Um, I think for me, ultimately, you have to find your own motivations, you know, find what drives you, find a role model, a mentor. You know, if you want to try something new, just go for it. Don't be limited by a colleague or a friend or a manager or someone else who you think might be able to do it, but it doesn't really matter. Um, I think with COVID as well, yeah, anything can change at the drop of a hat. Um, if you have to change jobs, you know, if it's the right thing, as Joe mentioned about attrition, to reach your full potential, that's completely fine. I don't see what the issue is. It might be a bit sad for you or sad for other people, but if it's the right thing, you have to do it. Um, I think it's important to move around, um, especially for me, having been in uh, Somerset for a while, moving to t different centres, and I think most people will say it is good to move around to see new ways of working, different environment, push yourself out of your comfort zone, um, you know, Try not to become too grounded and um, that sort of thing. So, yeah. So moving into Joe's favourite topic, attrition. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be honest. I never really understood this term, um, attrition, maybe because it's not been important for me quite early on in my career, if you want. But, you know, for other people, from what I've read online, um, it's where a student or a professional leaves the profession for personal reason, reasons, sorry, uh, issues in the workplace, you know, professional motivation or a job mismatch. Um, I think we all have those moments in work where we think, nah, I can't do this anymore, um, I'm done. Or as a student, definitely I had quite a few wobbles thinking, oh, I've just, you know, I've already got my student out from my first degree, now I'm coming as a mature student, I'm not sure this is for me. But actually, you know, we've all touched on it about the role model. I had a brilliant, amazing practice educator who just pushed me and kind of just gave me a professional shake, if you want, and said, you can do this, just, you know, it's a little bump, get over it. Um, so I know we touched on it already, Joe, but that pre-registration attrition, how important is it as an educator? Hugely important, really, in terms of making sure that your programme is designed to be supportive, recognising when students have those dips. Um, I don't know anyone who sailed through the profession and loved it every step of the way. 
Um, it's a demanding course. It's physical. It can be emotionally demanding. You need to be resilient. Um, it's it's highly academic. So actually, I think sometimes when you have lower UCAS entry criteria compared to maybe some of the other allied health professions, it can lead people into a false sense of security, which again, you could link right back to where we started in the podcast around, you know, making sure that people know about the profession so that um, more people apply for it so that you can push the entry criteria up a little bit. Um, and then actually it might be more suitable for those who are um, able to cope with some of the academic demands or flip it on its head. Are we creating too many academic hurdles for people to become a therapeutic radiographer? Um, there's probably a podcast in that <laughs> on itself, to be honest. Um, but I think, I think from a nutrition perspective, I think it's really important to recognise what causes students to want to leave the profession um, or, again, once they've qualified and they go in through preceptorship. And it's identifying some of those, um, those factors, so the repair project. Um, and I know that the Society College of Radiographers have recently appointed two repair fellows. Um, and we also have Michelle Simon, part of our National uh, Radiotherapy Career Steering Group, um, who is also a repair fellow um, on secondment for a year. They're all working really heavily to look at those repair statistics and doing the implementation. But I think we need to recognise as practitioners as well what we can do to support students. Um, it isn't just the responsibility of a university. It isn't just the responsibility of clinical. We have to work together. So role model, role modelling, inspiring um, professionals, recognising that actually some people might do this degree and may decide very early on or even before they actually start that they will use the degree to do other things. So I know I've had graduates who've done the degree and then gone straight into medicine. I've had graduates who've done this degree and then gone to work in labs and looking specifically at cancer research. Um, I've had graduates who've had a desire to straight away go into veterinary um, or to work in the manufacturing industry. I've got some entrepreneurs so those who've kind of utilised the degree to um, go into manufacturing immobilisation devices or working for, um, say, some of the linear accelerator manufacturers. I think having that huge scope can be really important. And I know we touched on some of the statistics, but some of our students recognise quite highly that they entered the profession because they knew that there were other things that they could utilise the degree for. I think we also recognise when we talk about attrition that radiotherapy is quite geographically remote. So when you look at, say, nursing, typically you could work as a nurse anywhere in the country, whether that's in a hospital, whether it's in a GP surgery, um, whether it's in um, a primary um, acute trust. You know, there's so many variations on where you could potentially work. Whereas, obviously, for those who want to practice as a therapeutic radiographer, typically, if you start, say, in Sheffield, you work at, uh, as a student at Sheffield Ham University, you go to the local radiotherapy department and train there. If you don't get a job there, you are very limited as to what you can do. If you have family, um, if you have um, a mortgage, responsibilities, you can't just move or even commute. 
Um, you know, the, the closest departments are Leeds or Derby. They take probably a good two hours to get to and get parked um, for anyone who has trusts where they struggle to get parked. Um, but I think it's important from that perspective to recognise that that's where the opportunities that Hazel was talking about, where you could utilise the degree, but to do other things, I think, is really important. And I know that I've been in clinical before and um, people have said, oh, why have you said to this student that they could do X, Y and Z after they've graduated? What are you, why are you filling your he their heads with nonsense? And I'm like, but it's not nonsense. I, I would love everyone on our course to qualify and be a therapeutic radiographer. But I think it's also important that we give them the opportunity to go out and explore what other jobs and roles are best for them and best suited for them logistically. Um, and Hazel and I have had discussions before about um, the fact that actually it's good for people as therapeutic radiographers to go into other areas to promote the role of a therapeutic radiographer and the diversity um, exactly as you would get a physiotherapist. Um, nobody would necessarily go, oh, why are you filling a physio's head with these bizarre um, bizarre jobs around physical education or um, working in ICU? It can be so diverse. And I think that actually you could achieve that with um, radiotherapy. It's just not as maybe well known or, or we yeah, don't I think do it's, it it's that same as what we've been trying to get to. That we need to shout about ourselves a bit more as a profession, don't we? So by the correct title um, in the right places, and almost whenever and wherever you can, um, you know, as Hazel mentioned, that there are roles and jobs that, you know, we can go for. But unfortunately, it might not be more opportune for a therapeutic radiographer because it's more of a nursing based job. But actually, we can do some of that. Lots of our consultants are independent prescribers or, you know, review rads or band sevens who are site specialists. They can prescribe. They can but actually touching on exercise and stuff. Everyone can prescribe exercise as a social prescription. And that's where, you know, as you've touched on with your work about prehab and rehab, that all comes into it and ties in really, really well. Um, but, yeah, so I suppose very, very quickly, um, as Joe's been talking quite a lot, um, we'll get Hazel and Shannon back into it. Sorry. <laughs> um, I suppose I'm going to put everyone on the spot a little bit. Um, you know, I know with COVID it's been a tough one. And for our profession, we may not have had as much recognition in the press, if you want. So we're not in IT, but we have been working day in, day out. At the beginning, with PPE, without PPE, all across the country, helping our cancer patients, you know, risking ourselves to risk, you know, to look after them, sorry, while they risk themselves. And there's the Catch Up to Cancer campaign, which is pushing and lobbying for our patients, which is brilliant. And, you know, I'm sure we've seen that record numbers of students have applied to become nurses, which is brilliant. But it takes a few steps, you know, it takes us a few steps back to showcase that the NHS is much more than doctors and nurses, you know, how it can be turned into positive for the future. So, fine. 73% more than ever nursing applications is fantastic but there are 14 you know other allied health professional roles that people could also go into where they might be more satisfied but we'll see we'll see from you know what happens in the future so it's been a tough year important we keep supporting our staff and students so putting you on the spot each um I suppose you know we've had a lot of virtual meetings where we take away actions so I suppose trying to take it from there um you know, they are helpful. So what is one thing that you would pledge to do for our profession? So I'll go first. Um, I pledge to keep showcasing how important therapeutic radiographers are in a cancer patient's treatment journey. So we are invaluable, um, in my opinion. So yeah, um, Shannon, do you want to go first for a pledge? 
Um, I pledge that, you know, I think, you know, like you said, at the moment, it's incredibly important to keep on top of our well-being. So as a member of the well-being team, you know, in my department, um, I think it's really allowed me to explore ways in which we can continue to engage students and staff to allow that they feel supported. So reducing the, you know, attrition and retention and things like that. So hopefully um, that's something that I continue to do as well as, you know, continue to support patients throughout, you know, Thank what you. is already a difficult Hazel. time for them. Well, you didn't tell me about this question, did you? Anyway, <laughs> I have thought of an answer, which is I will advocate flexibility and diversity. Um, you know, careers have longevity, and even if that flexibility means you take a step out for a while, do you know, that's absolutely fine. And as Joe was talking about diversity, even doing something different, working for a vendor, but it's about that therapeutic way of being that platform, that's fine too. So flexibility and diversity um, for me. Thank you. And Jane? You're going to laugh at this one. I'm going to make sure I continue to correct anyone who doesn't call themselves a therapeutic radiographer <laughs> in the nicest possible way. I hope, I hope I do it nicely. But as Charlotte Beardsmore once said to me, Joe, why do you keep calling yourself a therapy radiographer? And so I am now taking on that uh, that baton and handing it over to other people. So yes, I'm I'm a huge advocate to make sure that people will continue to use our professional title um, and promote the profession. Well, thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you to all three of you to being involved, um, giving up your evening for us. It's really, really nice. Um, anyone listening, obviously, please retweet, um, forward on to colleagues, friends, students, patients, anyone, really. We're very, very appreciative of any support um, across any media. So, yeah, be good. And thank you very much for listening.